I don't have an agenda. Wait, you, I did. You I did, read some of that. I read uh, a good chunk of it, and then I had to jump on a call. Um, did you like it? Um, I'm curious. I, I'm curious about it. Uh, we can talk about it if you're interested in talking about it. I, I was intrigued that 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 uh, someone wanted us to compare uh, Said Kut to Trotsky, um, and a little bit daunted by that, I downloaded uh isaac deutscher's big three volume biography of trotsky and have sort of fallen into that in the last three days of course wow, I'm, really but I'm, I'm i'm no better prepared to actually <laughs> talk substantively about trotsky apart from what i wrote in that essay um, how far did you get into the biography i'm about five chapters in it's good it's really well written but deutscher's a like a hardcore you know like leninist uh violent i mean he, he made a lot of excuses for for the soviet union so it's fascinating to read it now uh and try and you know at least this is still trotsky's early life and i'm i'm trying to see where 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 the 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 badness of Deutscher creeps in. I'm sure it'll come in at some point. You can already see little things about it. <laughs> but it's 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 fascinating insofar as we've we've uh you know, you and I always talk about uh and even, you know, our larger project with Sam and everything is and Osita is is always talking about democracy and the people and things like that. And you know, I I've I've spent more time with the the right wing critics of of all of that, and it's just it's fascinating to now really delve into that early twentieth century, late nineteenth century uh, left wing uh, skepticism, shall we say, of democracy. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, maybe let's give let's give listeners some context to your somewhat recent obsession with Leon Trotsky. Yeah, you were in Mexico City. I was. On a trip that I wasn't able to join for, but it sounds like it was fun. It was. And you you actually uh, went to the site where Trotsky was killed with an ice pick, I believe. You know, it, it's on, on the ice pick question, I, it's it's not clear to me. They didn't, like, have it displayed or anything. They just had his table where he, apparently the assassin came up to him and... and rammed something in his in his skull i'm not sure it's an ice pick some some translations say it's an ice axe anyway someone they planted an axe in his head whatever they brained him on his right so he table. couldn't see it so he was looking away so someone came up from behind him and so he didn't really have advance notice yeah i don't think so i think they just found the old man slumped at his desk with an axe in his head that's either a terrible way to die or a good way to die, because if you saw it coming, that could be like very, very frightening. But if you were just in your study at your desk doing some work, and then someone comes from behind, you didn't realize it, like you won't, you won't have time to be fearful. Uh, you know, now that you mention it, I, I really, I, I haven't read uh, accounts of the of the murder. Uh, I did see photos at this. It's a little museum, you know, in, in Mexico City, Leon Trotsky's house. It's in his house there that they built this little museum. And there are photos of him. I, he didn't die right away. I was in the hospital, and I mean, I oh. pretty pretty much unconscious. I'm not sure he regained consciousness, but I I think I think the, that the uh, the wound was sort of in the forehead, so he probably saw him coming. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. okay, my bad. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know that detail. That's I mean, sad. I, I didn't either. It's grisly, but yeah. Um, well, maybe so. Not everyone knows who Leon Trotsky is. I mean, people I'm sure have heard his name. But why, I mean, maybe just lay some of the overall context of why he went into self-imposed exile in Mexico City, because obviously he was once in, in Russia. 
I mean, he he fled uh, he fled the Soviet Union, um, and I mean, I, I think it was sort of all over the place. He was in New York for a while as well. And uh, really, yeah. Wait, they let him? They let him spend time in the U.S. Honestly, that's this is why I want to read Deutscher's biography because I, I don't actually know the the history of of his flight and and the rest of it that well to be able to to really you know talk at length about it. In Mexico City, though, he he you know I mean, uh, it just sort of. He was there with Frida Kahlo, and and uh, you know the, the the artist community apparently had an affair with Frida Kahlo at some point, and um, you know was living that sort of expat artist leftist uh, life, you know, with dignitaries from you know leftist cultural milieus from around the world coming pay pay homage and, and pilgrimage to see the old man, um, and you know the house is nice. It's, not 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 huge, but uh, Mexico City's lovely. <laughs> must have been must have been good. Um, but yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, it was the, with the break with Stalin uh, that basically had him flee the country and um, and basically was in exile, preaching a rival vision for for communism. But there are a lot of questions as to you know how much of that is is true. I mean, I, I'd say maybe the the reason why. Um, Maybe not the reason, but maybe more resonant for people is is how many intellectuals in the 20th century, including uh, uh, a lot of the the, the so called neoconservatives, the first generation, they you know they were all caught up in these Stalin versus Trotsky debates and fights. Uh, a lot of the sort of early neoconservatives uh, fancied themselves uh, Trotskyists, I guess I've learned, not Trotskyites, as I, I titled the uh, the um, the uh, the piece at Wisdom of Crowds. Um, and, uh, you know, these were, these were the sort of defining debates of the time, the mid-century, um, about, uh, yeah, basically, uh, whether, whether, whether the Soviet Union could have been otherwise, whether Trotskyism represented a different sort of way, a different kind of approach to it. And then, you know, uh, it's, it's sort of the intellectual backbone of a lot of people's thinking, I guess, uh, you know, not even on the, on the, on the left, though predominantly on the left, uh, that then migrated onto the right. So it was really striking to me, this little essay that I dashed off, uh, basically just inspired by going to his house and um, actually also a brief conversation with our friend Jamie Kerchik, who had just penned an essay against our former guest, Sora Bamari, while I was in Mexico City, um, and, you know, where he sort of talked about his, uh, their shared youthful neoconservatism. So I had a conversation with Jamie about neoconservatism, which also got me thinking about Trotsky and the rest of it. So I just came back, you know, reread some stuff that I had read in the past and, and dashed off this essay, just some sort of ruminations about it. And it's interesting. I've gotten a lot of uh, interesting feedback from across the political spectrum, from unexpected places, uh, given the, the, the sort of uh, interesting history of, of Trotskyism. Um, and maybe that's what's, what's gotten me to sort of engage more with it. It seems like even though no one really talks about Trotsky anymore, uh, his 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 legacy is still there. And even if people don't really think about it, uh, it really had a lot of resonance that essay in sort of weird uh, quarters. Yeah, and I should I should say um, I thought it was an incredible essay, and I was and I didn't actually read it before it came out. So I, I was just like everyone else as a sort of um, ordinary reader. I, I woke up and it was the first thing that I read. And I thought to myself, as I often have in the past, Demir Marushik is one of the great American essayists Croatian of our American. time. Croatian-American. No, but now I'm, <laughs> oh, so you've I'm not me. even being ironic now. Now I'm being straight up. 
So there I, is, if there was any, if there was any doubt before, there is no longer. And um, so we'll include that essay in the show notes. I would recommend that everyone stop what they're doing, not right now, but after the podcast and read this. It's titled somewhat suggestively, Am I a Trotskyist? Question mark, where Demir basically investigates whether or not um, he shares some similarities with Trotsky's way of thinking, um, obviously not on violence, of course, we wouldn't want that, but on, on some of the, some ideas around the nature of historical progress, which as listeners will know, has been a recurring theme as of late on Wisdom of Crowds. And maybe this is also just an, um, I should also note that um, we'll, we'll be doing a bonus episode after this for subscribers. So just a reminder, if you like what we're doing and wanna continue hearing what I'm sure will be a fascinating conversation, you can subscribe to Wisdom of Crowds by going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. Um, please consider joining us. And um, yeah. Yeah. Demir, what were you going to say? Well, so, I mean, I, I, uh, I, 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 I hate to sound sort of, you know, I don't know, like I'm, trolling for for compliments but, but what did you like about the essay honestly i because I, I struggled with it a lot <laughs> and i'm glad that 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 people liked it but you know I, I i sort of i got it over the finish line and i felt like oh my god i did it i hope it's not a complete disaster because it was a lot longer in its initial version i couldn't wrap it up so like the last couple hours was me just basically cobbling it together so it would hang together so i had i didn't have very high high hopes for it so i don't know maybe that'll trigger some of our conversation around it uh, but what did you find that was uh, that that like resonated with you, with you in particular, actually? Um, Why me in particular? Um, I mean, I guess one of the themes that I was sort of trying to work around, which I figured might re resonate, was that that conception, as you just said, about uh, you know progress. It's 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 complicated though, because again, it's as I was writing it, as I was working with it, it had less even to do. With progress, but I think like getting into the mind of, of a of a of a revolutionary is it was it was it about revolution? Was that something that that triggered you? Was it about the sort of uh, yeah maybe the the bigger question of of progress through history and humanity and and the role of democracy as a progressive force? I don't know which yeah, part. Yeah, that's what, part what, of it. I mean, I, it? I liked that it was a weird essay, mm. and I can't imagine anyone else writing it. So. That's always nice when you stumble upon an essay where you think to yourself, this was utterly singular, and if Demir didn't exist, no one would have written it. <laughs> Most essays, let's be frank, can be written by multiple people um, to, to one degree or another. So I felt like this was very true to you. And it's also personal. I mean, obviously you were literally there, um, but you also talk about where um, you investigate to what extent you agree with Trotsky on on certain controversial notions, and you walk the reader through that, which is a which was very interesting to me. But it does you get at the fundamental questions of um, the arc of history. Does it bend? Does someone need to bend it? Mm. And what does it mean to be, to bend it if you if that's what you're looking to do? And obviously, violence uh, unfortunately is one option, and that's where you obviously part ways with Trotsky. That, um, but maybe you can, so, I mean, maybe I can just sum up what I thought was one of the interesting um, points that you made is that um, Trotsky did not believe 
that the heart, the arc of history bended towards anything in particular. He didn't believe that history moved in his direction. And that's precisely why, as I understand it, he felt violence and revolution was necessary. You needed to impose, you needed, you, you needed basically to use violence to bend history. Otherwise, it wouldn't get to where it needed to be. And, and Trotsky wanted there to be some kind of socialist utopia um, or communist endpoint. But he didn't believe that it could just happen on its own through the contradictions of capitalism. As some Marxists thought that it was only a matter of time and you just had to wait for the right moment. And then it would happen organically through the will of the worker as workers were able to collectively organize. Trotsky was like, no, this has to be done through force, mm. revolutionary force. Um, and, um, and I guess that's where the self-confidence comes in. Like you, to believe that violence is necessary to achieve an end, you really have to believe in yourself to an extreme degree. And I think you talk about your own personal take on that is that you're not someone who has that quote unquote murderous self-confidence. <laughs> so you see a world that is um, that is chaotic and messy and you're not trying to impose impose order on it because you are, you don't have that level of self-confidence. Yeah. In your own ideas, right? Yeah. yeah, no, that's right. That's right. I mean, it's striking, I guess, you know, what 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 successful leadership demands, I, I think. I mean, it's I, I hesitate to say successful given the, the costs of what what Lenin and and, uh, and Trotsky wrought, you know, never mind Stalin after them. Um, and I cost, I mean, you know, just human cost and toll in lives and I, I don't know you can quantify it in many other ways of you know foregone wealth if things had gone differently perhaps and you know how Russia is today <coughs> but um, you know the the just uh, I just point out one thing it's the and I'm really getting much more of an appreciation of this uh, with Deutscher is is you know the 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 uh, the disjunct between sort of uh, Trotsky, the philosopher, if you will, and Trotsky, the uh, just very self-confident writer. Um, you know, at the at the at the first uh, uh, Congress, where uh, basically you know Lenin tries to get people together. I think it was like 1903 or two. Uh, again, I'm terrible at dates, even though I read a lot of history. Um, <laughs> Uh, he he, uh, you know, at that point, there's a the, the the initial break between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks, uh, and this is you know before any revolution comes to Russia, and uh, this is where where Trotsky actually parts ways with Lenin uh, in a, in a way that I I was not fully aware of the extent to which there was that amount of rancor. I know this came back to haunt him later, uh, and the writings he did against Lenin, but it's the early Trotsky actually is is very much. Uh, saying that Leninism, and this is the real repository of this kind of uh, real revolutionary, you know, uh, idea that, that individuals and intellectuals need to take control over, you know, and indoctrinate uh, the proletariat, the workers, um, to give them revolutionary momentum. That comes from Lenin. And even at those early points, and at first, Trotsky is completely horrified, though, of course, later, as you see in this uh, terrorism and communism, which is written uh, just after, uh, you know, two years, three years after the, the, um, uh, 
the November, the October Revolution, um, when they come to power, and it's they're fighting a civil war against the you know the the the, the so-called whites in Russia who are trying to restore. Um, uh, well, to, to restore restore the monarchy and, you know, the liberals again, they're, they're fighting this like rear guard action and it's terrible. And so it, what's, what's striking about it is not just that Trotsky, uh, you know, it's not that he has a, a set of convictions that he believes in. It's that he is able to give, the, give them whatever they are at any one point. Uh, give them with such vehemence and such confidence, and it's it's that confidence that I think you know lets lets him and Lenin triumph at that point. It's this kind of dogged, almost delirious uh, determination. And I wonder where that comes it. from. Do you have a sense? Uh, how do people become that way? Trotsky, I think, was just born that way. It's just one of these like incredibly bright people uh, who, you know, learns that he has a talent for writing, and then sort of falls in love with his ability to write and speak and, you know, be a demagogue in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I, I, am reading this Deutscher right now, but I'm also, you know, slowly making my way through this, this massive Hitler biography by Brendan Sims. And that's also a fascinating <laughs> sort of parallel, uh, you know, another, another demagogue and not, you know, I, Hitler seems to have thought of himself a philosopher and was writing all of these, these big tracts, you know, even beyond Mein Kampf, there's like a lot of writing of his, um, and it's but not unlike, unlike Trotsky, no one, very few people, even I think Hitler's supporters or sympathizers, they don't really consider him to be a great philosophical mind. I mean, that's no. not generally the focus with Hitler. No one's saying, oh my God, his tracks are philosophically incredible. Where I think Trotsky is someone who is very much respected. Ah by fellow travelers yeah, as a right. thinker and yeah. an intellectual. Right. I mean, but that also gets at what's so funny about it that, you know, so much of, so many of the debates, you know, it, it jumps off the page within the context of the the debates within Marxism and this revolutionary ferment and you really does transport you into a world. But, you know, you take a step back even after this, um, and it's interesting reading the, the introduction to Terrorism and Communism by Slavoj Žižek, who is, a very clever, you know, hard, hard left philosopher guy, um, and but and Zizek even, is also a bit of a postmodernist and a yeah. little bit Trumpy. He, I, I don't remember if he outright endorsed Trump, but he was definitely enamored by Trump in certain ways. Uh, was it was it because Trump was a uh, bringing forth capitalism's own? I don't know. I have no idea what yeah, what, yeah. what Zizek was doing at the time. But again, you know, yeah, right. I feel like you know the the mo even the modern uh, leftist that appreciates Marxism has to appreciate it through through a kind of ironic postmodern lens on some level. <laughs> He's like always playing with it. And so, you know, yeah, look, uh, Trotsky's a powerful writer. Um, he, I guess, is, you know, it, I mean, I guess it, it, it's just the intellectual ferment of the time is just shaped by Marxism. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's, no, um, there's no way around that. Uh, but it, it's funny because the Marxism itself is just, you know, you read it, you know, again, you can sort of be transported in a different world, but as soon as you take a step back, you're just sort of rolling your eyes at it, you know, to, to a large extent. Now, maybe that's also my priors that I, you know, I, I don't have much time for that stuff, but... Um, yeah, well, yeah. also at some fundamental level, I mean, communism is silly. Yeah, 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 yeah. At least certainly in retrospect, maybe at the time we would have felt differently. Well, one question I have um, before I forget, can you remind us the source of the falling out between... Um, between Lenin and 
the falling out was between Stalin and Trotsky. Yeah, well, or I Lenin mean, and Trotsky. No, no, no. Well, Lenin and Trotsky is a is a is a question, and it's a the the, the real story is that, that uh, Stalin was just a better bureaucrat, and you know Lenin was dying, um, and uh, you know there's obviously going to be a, a, a struggle for succession after it. Uh, you, ever, you you watch the movie the oh no that was the Succession? death of Stalin no that was the death of Stalin not the death of Lenin <laughs> someone should make a death of Lenin uh, movie um, no but again whenever one of these these kinds of people dies and there's no clear path there's there's always going to be a scramble um, and and uh, again as I as, as I understand it is not not some great specialist but it, it's it's uh, while while Trotsky was a, a brilliant orator and a leader and a character and a integral you know like figure in the party, uh, Stalin just completely outflanked him by, you know, uh, managing to get control of, of, of all the, the, uh, the levers of power within the, the, the Soviet Union. So basically, uh, then when he turned on Trotsky, he was, he was screwed. Um, and, again, and he turned on Trotsky primarily just for consolidating power, or was there a philosophical divide I mean that consol- emerged later I think I mean emerged later uh, yeah but again you know so much of this and this is this is why uh, it's it's good to I think have the, the distance of history and you can sort of uh, look at all these doctrinal divides and sort of contextualize them more in a, in, in the terms of a power struggle uh, even at the earliest points where where the sort of Bolshevik Menshevik divide was happening you know at the you know beginning of the 20th century uh, it ends up being uh, you know a personality difference and, a, and, a, and an attempt to to gain power Power at something that then, in retrospect, gets justified in all sorts of um, uh, you know theoretical and ideological ways, which again gets down to another fight that actually you and I haven't had on, on the podcast much. But again, it's the 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 role, the proper role of ideas in understanding a lot of this stuff. I find it interesting to read these sort of you know early squabbles and and see just how instrumental towards just sort of call it a will to power a lot of the sort of doctrinal debates end up being, you know, and how self serving. Uh, the development of certain ideas ends up being. Again, I, I don't want to be. I don't want to be just like a grotesque materialist about these sorts of things. But <laughs> but but I am. I am a bit of a grotesque materialist about these sorts of things. If not a Except materialist, you're someone who who cares deeply about ideas. I mean, that's why you study them. Yeah. Because you think they matter. But in another sense, you don't think they matter all yeah. that much. And yeah. Maybe at some point we should unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, I think it's worthwhile unpacking. Um, and I, I don't know if I have the you know a full answer yet. I mean, I I, I enjoy like grappling with this sort of stuff, but uh, it just keeps coming back at me that again, it's not materialism so much as as you know, I don't know what the will to powerism, if that's exactly materialism. You know, I mean, materialism is more that sort of Marxist idea that it's economic factors that lead to everything. It's not what I mean when I say materialism. It's more, it's more this kind of I don't know. Everything is about power. Yeah, I mean. Everything, ultimately, ultimately, so much of, of this stuff, when you really dig into it, you look into it, it really is about struggles between individuals to sort of, you know, get at and, and grasp something. Uh, now, they may be motivated by ideas, but it's interesting how many times, as I was just saying, you know, they end up reaching for ideas and then developing ideas in order to win something that's actually much smaller and parochial, which then by subsequent, you know, followers and people gets developed into an ideology. And again, ideas play a role here in, in, in maintaining cohesion, perhaps, and, 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 you know, keeping things together. But, you know, the contingency and the personalities are, are just so big in this, in my reading anyway, you know. Um, 
Yeah, and this is where I think I agree, I agree with you certainly on on one aspect of this that I think ideas matter quite a lot, but I think ideas are contingent. They're products of context and also they're products of idiosyncratic personalities. You have weird people at weird times and they come up with radical ideas because of where they're at in their lives at that particular time. And this is where the comparison with Seyed Koto um, becomes relevant. Um, someone who has, I think, been unfairly simplified as the godfather of, of terrorism. Um, it's very complex. I mean, his intellectual development is, is quite complex and we don't need to go into that now. But I think as I've been rereading some of his work in, in recent weeks and diving back into some of those debates, you can understand Kotob's radicalization without looking at his time in prison and his radicalization in the US. He spends two years in Greeley, Colorado, and that becomes one of the pivot points in his life. He is shocked by what he sees in the US and that pushes him in a particular direction. Then he's then he is imprisoned and, and tortured. And that also shapes his views. And you can see it almost chronologically that after after his suffering in prison, the, the tenor of his work changes. So if he wasn't tortured, if he wasn't imprisoned, then um, his views would have evolved in a somewhat different fashion. And we'll never know what that might have looked like. So again, now now to me to play the shoddy role here for, for uh, listeners who don't know. Said Kut, father of the intellectual father of the Muslim Brotherhood. And, you know, no, what, like, how no. would you put it? How would, yeah, you, how would um, you characterize him? He, he was a Muslim Brotherhood ideologue. Um, he, I wouldn't say he's the intellectual father in the sense that the Brotherhood later disavowed some of his more radical ideas. Mm. Um, and then then the followers of Kotob after he was executed in 1966 by the Nasser regime, many of them left the Brotherhood and then started up radical, smaller vanguard radical movements where they started to find more and more ways to justify revolutionary violence. I mean, Kotob himself was not was never very explicit about when violence is justified. So people had to kind of read that into his text after he passed. Mm. Um, but certainly Kotob's ideas became an inspiration for various extremist and and terrorist groups after after his death. So the 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 source at least from my understanding and that essay which we'll put in the in the show notes that uh you shared with me which is dense and you know readers uh you know uh, with caution it's it's fascinating <laughs> but it's 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 a lot and especially for someone like me not not really being well versed in it it was interesting but you know a bit of a slog to get through um the the uh the author mentions it's it's Paul Berman that 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 you know makes that linkage. Was anyone else making the linkage between Kutb and sort of modern Islamic you know radicalism terrorism, or was that is that basically Paul Berman's big contribution? Paul Berman's probably the most the popularizer? prominent person, yeah. popularizer of that. But it, it became relatively common um, after nine eleven to hear some version of that. Mm. That Kutb as the sort of um, the the in inspiration for radical movements and for the you know um, the rise of terrorism in the post 9-11 world but yeah. so so but again you know this is as much for me as our, our dear listeners uh you wouldn't describe could himself necessarily as a revolutionary or you would no no he was definitely a revolutionary i don't think it would but so, i wouldn't so, call him um 
like a terrorist. No, because, well, because yeah. I, I want that's exactly what I want to sort of get at is, you know, I mean, I, I think far too often and even even in, in sort of grappling with Trotsky, we, we, we conflate this idea of, you know, revolution and violence and terror. And Trotsky himself does it for, I think, instrumental reason in terrorism and communism. You know, I mean, largely it's circumstance that pushes him there. And quite frankly, there's a lot in Lenin and in Trotsky's earlier, earlier writings that, that, you know, it's, it's, it's linear and gets him there. But it is, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily. So, I mean, should, can you, do you make a distinction between, um, between those two things, between uh, revolution and revolutionary violence? How do you think about revolution? Yeah, so I definitely distinguish between revolutionary activity and and terrorism. Um, I think revolutionary violence or revolutionary activism more broadly is just part of the human condition. And if we if we simply reduced violence in the name of revolution to terrorism, then we'd have to disavow our own founding as Americans and and so forth. So, uh, yeah. I mean, and so forth, though. But like, I mean, it's it's. I think you know. I guess that's what I'm really coming to appreciate in a lot of this. You know, earlier on, reading the 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 sort of uh, the writings of the Ur fascist Schmidt, and then uh, you know, sort of getting into this sort of stuff. I mean, I, I think there isn't an, uh, an argument to be made there about uh, you know, revolution is 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 fundamental to the human condition. Right? That's it's a good way to put it. Um, at the same time, you know. It's it, it is interesting, and I, I, I get at that at the Trotsky essay, and maybe you can talk a little bit more in the sort of uh, uh, in the sort of Islamist context how that works. Is is the idea, and that, that I think that this essay that that you you had me read, I, that, you know, gestures at that is is the idea between you know kind of revolutionary approaches to changing things, and then a, a more um, I don't want to say statist, it's not right, but, uh, you know, a more evolutionary, I guess, is the way to put it. And, and that ends up being one of the disjuncts, right, between a lot of the revolutionary uh, approaches, including uh, Nazism, fascism in Italy, uh, you know, uh, Bolshevism in Russia, uh, and then the path, the, that the sort of the liberal democratic path, which is... Uh, scorned by the Marxists, certainly, and and by Hitler, as you know that it's it 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 denies the revolution in a lot of ways. I mean, in a way, revolutionary liberalism. Psh, what is that? It's it. You know, there's the the uh, the glorious revolution in England, which isn't really a revolution. There's the American Revolution, which some also say isn't properly a revolution. You know, and I mean, a lot of the sort of modern criticism of America, you know, uh, I think hones in on that, that it was kind of an aristocratic overthrow of a, of a monarchy far away, but, you know, not much more than that. Um, and then you have real revolution, which kind of juxtaposes itself against liberalism. Liberalism in the 19th century comes up as, you know, something that, uh, you know, uh, comes out of the French Revolution, certainly, but it's, it's a, again, in the words of Marxists, it's a, it's a bourgeois thing that, that saps the, the will of the revolution. That's what Trotsky's getting at. So I don't know, like, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with, with that? You know, the, again, the, the question of revolution, permanent revolution, which is a Trotskyite idea, and, 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 and liberalism as a status quo sort of thing, and democratic liberalism as a status quo sort of force. Well, I think, I think there are maybe two categories of revolution that we can look at. I mean, one is um, 
revolutions of self-determination or national revolutions. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, overthrowing colonial rule in, in various colonies in the Middle East, Africa, and so forth. Or um, So I think here about Mandela, I mean, Mandela was a revolutionary and he led the armed wing of the African National Congress for for several decades. But he wasn't someone who was temperamentally a revolutionary in the way that Trotsky was, in the sense that he w Mandela was able to make the transition after apartheid was overthrown to um, to liberal democratic politics, and he was fine making that transition. So clearly, we have examples of people who support revolutionary violence in a particular context because it's necessary to get to a point of minimal freedom. And then you can talk about um, liberal democracy or normal politics, right? So that to me is a revolutionary violence that, that is obviously justified. Um, and here we have to separate between um, targeting institutions of government and targeting innocent civilians. There were some terrorist acts that the armed wing of the ANC was responsible for. I mean, relatively few, but, um, and maybe that's just part of it that in any kind of revolutionary situation, there is going to be some incidents of terrorism. We can also look at the founding of, of the modern state of Israel, which I think um, for its protagonists was certainly legitimate, but there were also, um, there were terrorist excesses and there was some targeting of, uh, of civilians. Interesting Sorry? Use of, yeah. Interesting use of legitimacy, though. I mean, I always imagine legitimacy as something that you claim after you've won. I don't think there's anything inherently legitimate about any particular act unless you are well, able to determination if you if right, you want to have your it, own state sure but if it fails you're it's it's clearly you know you're you're hanging off the gallows somewhere and you're claimed as an illegitimate terrorist and then if you succeed you're <laughs> you're you're you claim that you know clearly your cause was just but whatever right true but i would say in some in some abstract sense just because someone loses doesn't mean what they were trying to do was inherently illegitimate do you know what so I'm saying? Though, to, I'm not. I'm, I, yeah, I, I'm yeah. questioning the inherent part. I'm not questioning whether someone is or isn't. It's the inherency that I'm really stumbling on there. You know what I mean? Uh, the state of Israel exists, and therefore their struggle proved to you know is legitimated at this point. Had that failed, uh, we would talk about this quixotic you know Zionist uprising in the Middle East that was crushed by the the British Empire. I don't know. Whatever. I'm not sure that's exactly what it was. Yeah, I guess I would say the desire for self determination is legitimate, which has to be separated from how that manifests itself politically in reality. I'm just saying that the impulse, and maybe this gets us to one of our, to one of our disagreements, I, I'm, I'm sort of able to divine legitimate impulses, and I'm fine with saying that, oh, this is, this is a democratic impulse. This is an impulse for self-determination. This reflects something innate in the human spirit to have control over one's destiny. Yeah, you're you're able to divine it. You make claims for it, right? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I mean, it's a serious question. I'm not just trolling. Like, uh, and then and then you'll argue and you'll you'll get poetic about it. That about you know the the struggle for freedom and invoke all these things. And but so, for example, if founders were killed, yeah, the founders of the U.S. Um, were, did not succeed. Their impulse was a legitimate one, regardless. And we we should be able to st to state that and say, okay, this. 
this is something we believe. I'm, I'm, sh I'm sure someone could then push back and say, well, what makes it legitimate? Um, I guess. It's complicated though, right? Even the revolution in the American revolution is a complicated thing, especially once you sort of dig into it and see how, how it, 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 it ended up forming and coalescing. It's not, it's not, it's not a simple slogan of, you know, uh, no taxation without representation, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it plays a role, a lot of self-justification going on there. Um, and I, I do like the, you know, the counterfactuals of imagining what, what it would have been like if the British had managed to, to, you know, put down the rebellion here, uh, how the world would have been different or not, you know, um, again, it, it, to me, it's, it's more interesting to talk about, you know, what is it about sort of, you know, the, the Anglo-Protestant character that, that led to the kind of ideologizing about freedom and the other stuff that, you know, helped, uh, you know, the United States actually eke out its victory with the help of the French. And, you know, I, I don't know, I guess yeah. that's how I view it. Now, again, within the context of America, I, I, I'm, I'm, I think it's, it's, it's important that, that we have a certain kind of mythologized and awed, uh, idea behind it, because that's all there is for this country, ultimately, that, that binds us in this kind of, that kind of ideologizing. But if you study the revolution, you know, I don't know, uh, you look at it a little more closely and you read some of the stuff, it's, it's, it's not just that, right? Well, look, we can make a more simple claim that revolutions tend to arise in contexts of authoritarianism. There are relatively few revolutions that arise in contexts of liberal democracy. Okay. That should tell us something. Okay, that's good. So, yeah, right? I mean, so um, Kotob, if, if Seyed Kotob was, um, if he had been living in a democracy where he had some semblance of freedom of expression, he wouldn't have advocated the revolutionary overthrow of, of non-Islamic governments. He's a product of his particular context, and we can draw a line from, from his context to what he ended up advocating for. Just like the reason it's hard for me to be a revolutionary is because I'm born and raised in a liberal democratic context. That makes it harder for most Americans to be revolutionaries. And, um, and that's like one of the good things about democracy is that it suppresses the desire for revolution and revolutionary violence. Well, so, okay, let's leave violence out of it because, I mean, I, I want to talk about revolution and keep violence to the side. And this is, you know, like, like I was saying, part of the reason why I ended up, you know, spending two days wrestling with this silly Trotsky essay is that uh, part of it was, was you know, seeing the shrine. Part of it was, you know, Jamie Kerchuk was, was also in Mexico City, so I was talking to him about about his essay about Sorab and... and, and uh, and related things about neoconservatism, um, I do. Do you do you see the 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 you know Sorab's project, Patrick Dean's project, as revolutionary? No, no, no. What is it? Um, <laughs> I mean, why? Okay, okay, how about this? Why not? That's the end of the first part of our discussion, dear listener. In part two, we go on to discuss revolutionary movements in our midst from common good conservatives to the woke movement. Part two is only for paying subscribers. So if you'd like to listen, please consider signing up and supporting our work at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. Thanks for listening and hope to see you over there.